Hey, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hello from uh, somewhat rainy Tel Aviv. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from... We're starting cloud hosting. Steve Edwards. Yo, coming from the chick magnet wig from my mommy Portland. You look so good, Steve. You've never looked so good. I love it. I was so ready to say my name and I couldn't breathe. Uh, I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And uh, this week we have a special guest. It's Joyce Lynn. Joyce, do you want to introduce yourself? Let people know who you are and why you're awesome and famous and all that good stuff. Ah, thank you. Um, hi, it's nice to be here. My name is Joyce. I work at Postman out of San Francisco. So today is also a little bit gloomy, but I've been on this podcast once before many, many, many moons ago. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Steve. Um, and Steve, that wig is working. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. So, I remember that one. I'm yeah. actually a Postman user. I think most of the world is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a handy depth, tool. Especially JavaScript, yeah. But yeah, I, I heard you on PodRocket, actually, a plug for another podcast. Um, you were talking about reverse engineering private APIs, which I thought was interesting. And, you know, I've done a little of that, like setting up a Charles proxy between, you know, my phone and some service just to see what's floating by. But you were actually talking about like building stuff on it and stuff, which I thought was interesting. So um, I wanted to cover some of that here and talk a little bit more about how we can use Postman and things like that. So um, I, I I always love a good story. So let's just start there. Like what, what got you into, oh, hey, I'm going to reverse engineer something. And well, yeah. I'm going to give you a caveat. I am not an expert. And that was part of the reason. Uh, actually, I started reverse engineering in API or documenting it really, the process uh, for Cascadia JS. I was going to give a talk. Okay. And it was going to be about reverse engineering. And I am just, uh, I'm the head of developer relations. I mm -hmm. can code, but I'm not day in, day out writing code. I'm certainly not doing penetration testing. I'm not a security person. I'm not a tester. Right. And so I came at it from like, I really wanted to get something done. Uh, how can I do it? So I, I'm not an expert by any means. Well, that's fine. I, I don't feel like I'm an expert a lot of the time. And I'm writing code all day. So what API were you trying to... So I took a look at a couple. Um, I was, you know, just getting on TikTok at the time. So I was curious about TikTok's web APIs. There's a lot of uh, obscure obscurity around their web APIs. And you can see mm -hmm. all that traffic in network calls. And a lot of it's obscured just with like variable letters. And so what is that? I did not dig deep into TikTok. Don't ban me, TikTok. Um, I personally <laughs> had something that I wanted to do. Every time I talk about this, I have shame. So please modulate your expressions on this. But I, I hacked the Yosemite camping.gov website because I wanted to go camping. They've changed it since then. So don't ask me how that bot was built. But I just wanted camping. Like, uh -huh. um, you know, Taylor Swift, Beyonce tickets. These are all reasons why you want to potentially understand how the website works. Um, in when those we cases, say, it's Ticketmaster. When we say hack, in this case, we mean take advantage of undocumented features, not exploit illegally. Correct. <laughs> okay, I just... did not do anything illegal. Um, I was taking advantage of web APIs that are perfectly observable and used in their websites. 
Yeah. So it was only uh, like that hack from a few months ago where the government website was putting the social security numbers in the HTML, not like a hack where you actually did something to gain unauthorized access. Yeah, I love it when people talk about, I use the hacking tool called the browser and view source to break <laughs> into the highly secure. <laughs> right, Chrome DevTools and the network tab. <laughs> Almost like it was built for it. <laughs> yeah. So gotcha. just to understand what you're talking about, you're talking about websites that make, let's, probably RESTful API calls from the client side in order to get uh, additional information or perform certain operations. But, you know, because these APIs are usually only invoked via the web facade that they build, there are certain restrictions on how they're used. For example, you know, if you want to perform multiple operations quickly, it's difficult if you want to input a lot of values, it might be difficult because otherwise you would need to input it manually. So bypassing the UI and going directly to the API layer lets you be more, I don't know, carefree about it? Yeah, and I think there's two reasons why people are reverse engineering. One is because they want to see they want to see what's going on, right? Visibility, understand all the steps that are happening. And then the other one, Dan, as you mentioned, is to replay and do it programmatically, do it super fast. Um, and so there's two parts of it. And when you're saying like, oh, well, are you really hacking when you're going into Chrome DevTools and viewing source? A lot of people don't know the full power of something like DevTools. And um, I mean, I work at Postman, so there's a lot more like visibility tools. Chuck, you're talking about Charles proxy. Postman has a proxy. Mm -hmm. I've played with that. I actually played with that for the TikTok API. And wow, wow, who who's going around scrolling TikTok with uh, the inspection, you know, inspecting all the network calls? And until you capture that traffic, you don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Right. What What were the names of the proxies you just mentioned? Uh, I think Chuck was using Charles Proxy. Charles Proxy. Yeah, Postman but anymore also, I just use Postman. So is Postman so has a proxy. Mm -hmm. The one The one I've been wondering is a lot of things are only on iOS, right? They never get released on anything else because it's some startup and they only care about iOS to start with and they don't have any web page. And so the thing I'm really interested in is I know there's a way that you could set something up. You can add the certificate to your phone. So you just go to, you set it up on your local network, you go to it on your phone and then you just click a button to add certificate and then, and then it will capture all of the data that goes to your phone and then you can, you can look at it. Is that, is Charles Proxy something like that or is it, or is it, um, what is Charles Proxy or do you know of tools that are that are like that for being able to to understand how phone apps are working? Well, Charles Proxy, Charles you just Proxy. you just set it up as an endpoint and it, it's kind of a man in the middle is the way that it's designed to be used. So you have to be able to redirect the traffic coming off your phone if you're using your phone with it through the proxy. Um and I don't remember exactly how that was done way back in the day, but uh, yeah. Postman does it similarly where it's a man in the middle. You have to be able to set up and route the traffic. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple different ways to do it. You could do it from like web route, like web to web or just from a device. And if it's web, if you're just uh, proxying website traffic, you can filter on specific domains it's a really great way to see what's going across and it's sometimes surprising to see what 
shows up in there. Yeah. In the old days, back before HTTPS was a thing, in the original versions of Facebook, I used to open up Wireshark at college in just uh, Mm -hmm. one of the lounge areas. And it was interesting to see people's Facebook conversations going back and forth on the network. (laughs) Thanks, AJ. I don't feel so old anymore. (laughs) You're welcome. So basically you're saying that, well, you know, so... If you're if you're doing it from, uh, like you said, from a mobile application, then you need some sort of a proxy tool. But if you're doing it for a web-based uh, interface, like Chuck kind of remarked before, all you kind of need is that amazing hacking tool called uh, DevTools. I mean, you can pretty much see all the network traffic very easily inside of there. Yeah, you can see it. But then um, when you're replaying it, how are you saving those calls? How are you um, capturing those calls? Mm-hmm. Right. I so, think you can save individual calls by right-clicking and doing a save. I think it, you can even save it as a curl command or something like that. Yeah, you can save it and export it. Like, um, So you can copy as curl. You can import. You can export HAR files, which is like it records an entire session. Um, and so I think, I think my talk was talking about, I had never heard of HAR files before HTTP archive. And so being able to capture and record an entire session and then sift through it afterwards, instead of being in your dev tools. Yeah. Steve Saunders, I think, uh, in created that uh, format, one of the grandfathers of web performance on, you know, uh, he invented that format. And in the old days, we created tooling for recording exactly these type of things, uh, network, network events. I will say though, that when you're, when it comes to simulating the APIs, I mean, that's where I've been using Postman and lately I've been writing integrations, uh, between two systems. So, you know, I hit the API on one end and then I hit the API on the other end, right? So get all of these and then send them to the other thing through the API. And so, um, if something's not working, that's a great way to isolate it. And so I can, that's why I like using the proxy that's built into Postman is because it pretty seamlessly moves the stuff back and forth for me. I don't have to go switch tools. And I, I was given this talk at Cascadia JS and I asked the entire conference, I said, who has successfully reverse engineered an API? And I think six hands went up. And I think it's easy enough to say, like, I see those network calls and I know conceptually how to replay them. But you try that. You copy as curl and you import it and you try to fire off that HTTP call. See what you get back because tokens are going to expire. There's going to be mm-hmm. something that you need to replicate. And having that visibility, like people are going to get stuck real fast. And unless you're hungry to get that camping spot at Yosemite or whatever it is, like you're just going to give up. Right. Yeah. I've had that experience with the CRF, CSRF tokens where that that can be a pain because that's often in the HTML. So you have to fetch the HTML file, then you've got to you know grep or whatever to to find where the token is in the HTML file. Or I've noticed this a ton with uh, recent versions of React and Angular sites where the token is inside the JavaScript that's inside of JSON. So you have double or triple escape strings because when the page goes to hydration, all the data for the page is there, including some of the tokens and whatnot. And then you, so you can you can find that in the page, and then pull that JSON in, and then traverse it once you've parsed it. But yeah, it the the initial the initial step can often be difficult 
especially because of page rehydration, because they're they're doing extra weird stuff, not necessarily to obfuscate it, but to quote unquote make it performant. Although the sites that I've seen that do this, I don't believe that they are at all any more performant for doing it. Um, and then, you know, af- after that, if they're using their own API, because that's the other thing is a lot of times sites don't use their own API because they develop their internal way of doing things like a Ruby on Rails site where everything's just HTML going back and forth. And then when they develop their public API, it's just a completely separate thing. It's a different server that accesses mm-hmm. the database in a similar way, but it's a completely different uh, way of exposing it. And so you may be mixing and matching between posting HTML for something that can only be on the, on the internal API and then you know accessing the, the REST API. But this is what I said right before we started the show. A lot of times, I, I find it better to reverse engineer. I like to click around and see what happens and watch those logs because it's often easier to read than the documentation. The documentation is often nested oh. 10 layers deep. <laughs> and, and, and then Sorry. the documentation doesn't expose the same things that are exposed if you look at the API. Now, granted, you don't have a compatibility guarantee on that. But a lot of times the documentation is terrible, but just clicking around in the interface and saying, okay, yeah, I want to be able to submit the form that does this thing. Boom, you've got exactly what you need. And then the documentation can be helpful to cross-reference if the documentation wasn't initially helpful in helping you get example responses through. Yeah, but that's that's a public API. And I will just chime in and, I mean, the integrations. And I'm working in logistics, right? So it's usually like orders, shipments, products, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, um, usually I start with what's in the documentation. And then I kind of tweak stuff in Postman until I get something that works. And um and yeah, it's because the documentation is, I think the friendliest term I can come up with is inadequate, right? They don't explain things well, like it may be accurate-ish. And then some of them are just outright lies. But well, the, uh, the thing that gets me is where there's nested objects and you go to look yeah. up the person object and it only gives you the details, like the property names of the person object. But it doesn't tell you, does it expect it to be JSON or does it expect you to be URL? Mm -hmm. It doesn't give you the context of a person object must always be contained within a group object. And so figuring out how to traverse that is is what often gets me in the auto-generated documentation because it's often auto-generated off of the Mm quote-unquote object-oriented paradigm, which is not what it is, but it's what they say it is. And it's just so blah. Yeah. What what I'm kind of concerned about is that, you know, so everything was RESTful APIs, which was awesome. And then people, you know, thought that, hey, that's too easy. Let's do GraphQL. By the way, how do you reverse engineer (laughs) GraphQL? Um, Can you reverse engineer GraphQL? I've never tried. Um, And now you just stand up the playground endpoint pointing to the GraphQL instance that you're interested in reverse engineering. And you just... You can either download the schema file because it's going to be in a well-known location, or you can just start typing and it will autocomplete. So you can discover it that way. The introspection? But, uh, yeah. yeah, that should actually be quite helpful if when I'm thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But then everybody said, no, GraphQL is not that good. Let's go back to RESTful APIs. And now, and now it seems that everybody is going to be moving away from RESTful APIs all over again because a lot of the modern quote-unquote frameworks are actually implementing their own kind of alternatives 
that might be built on top of RESTful APIs, but not necessarily so. Uh, for example, the protocol that uh, React server components use to download stuff looks a lot like JSON, but isn't. So, yeah, interesting times. I, I guess that's one question that I have regarding some of this, right, Joyce, is that, um, you know, you've reversed engineered a couple of things, it sounds like. Um, were some of them easier than others based on the, the format or protocol or whatever that they were using to give you data and the way you would access it? I think most of the stuff I looked at was web-based. So I wouldn't say I was, <laughs> I wasn't reverse engineering somebody's like internal right. calls or nothing. Um, but like AJ was talking about rehydration. This one, I actually needed help from um, one of the Postman engineers, but um, dynamically rendered sites. You know, when you hit um, LinkedIn.com and I want to scrape LinkedIn um, following the terms and everything, I want to scrape data <laughs> from a LinkedIn page. If I plug LinkedIn.com into the Postman website, I can inspect the page, but I'm not going to get back any of that data. So how mm -hmm. can I get that data when it's dynamically rendered? And I actually tried to scrape Postman. I thought it would be so easy. I work at Postman. Let me scrape Postman.com and scrape some of the stuff that some of that great, great data. And um, I didn't, the way I got around that was it is dynamically rendered, you know, but Okay, this is a tiny quiz. Can you think of what? How would you scrape a dynamically rendered website? How well you know? I could. I can think of several ways. I might use some sort of a headless browser, for example, as my as my tool, and then basically I'm just you know building a DOM object out of out of that HTML. Mm -hmm. the The way that I've had to do it was like I said find the hydration data, find out where there's the HTML script tag and where it, it has the, the hydration data in it, typically as JSON or sometimes as JavaScript, and then look for the specific token and then from there contact the API. And you have to run that JavaScript? No. No, I just use regular expressions. Oh, parsing with regular expressions. That's always fun and never any problem. <laughs> Zalgo, he comes. <laughs> Zalgo is savior and yeah. king in the world of text strings. No, it make, it makes sense in the sense that, yeah, if it's hydrating off of data that you can embed into the HTML, yeah, you can read it out of there. But I'm imagining the situation where, yeah, you know, you're hitting LinkedIn and, you know, maybe it's three or four clicks in and it's only updating part of the DOM in order to give you the information that it wants. And the thing is, is that, you know, if if you know what framework they're using and things like that, I guess you could reverse engineer some of that. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, I'd probably just wind up watching the network calls and kind of documenting as I go. Oh, they're calling this and getting this back. They're yeah. calling this and getting this back. And then, and then I would just build my stuff around that. But that seems like a lot of work too. <laughs> so this was something that I would not have succeeded had I not had technical help. But what I tried to do is in Postman, there's something called user agent header. Mm -hmm. And it says Postman because you're making the call from Postman. So I was like, okay, well, what if I pretended I was really sneaky and pretended I was a browser? Mm -hmm. And so I made that call and got back nothing. <laughs> so what ended up happening was a lot of these dynamically rendered sites want to be searchable by search engines like mm. Google or Bing, right? <laughs> I love and it. And 
maybe about once a week, they'll actually render everything and send it off. So what I had to do was pretend to be an SEO bot, a Bing bot, Google bot. And yes. then I got that data back. Woo-hoo. Although that's that's, awesome. in the case of Google, that's not such a best practice anymore. I mean, Google these days, I don't know what Bing does, but Google these days uses uses the engine of an evergreen Chrome browser. So um, the best practice is supposed to be to actually, in the case of the Google bot, return essentially the same uh, page that an actual Chrome browser would get. Um, obviously for various reasons and very often that's not the case and certainly with other search engines which may not be that sophisticated then you know they they definitely I know um, try to simplify the HTML and and remove some of the interactivity out of it and make it more like flat and unadorned. And AJ you were uh, you know politely complaining about documentation for some of these web APIs. But if I wanted to scrape a site like LinkedIn, LinkedIn is going to be very protective about that data, right? They'll probably mm-hmm. have endpoints that allow you to create new posts or, you know, push things to their website. But when it comes to taking, pulling information off of their platform, they might actively choose not to offer those endpoints. And so not only are they like, you know, the documentation might not be up to par, but like they're actively choosing not to offer that functionality through their public API. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's most websites. Most, I don't think that most web apps are created with the idea of, hey, we ought to structure this in a well-formed way using REST and JSON so that as we grow and we need to build sub apps or we need to allow integrations with partners, we can easily do that. Like, I, I don't think that most people have that going through their head. I think most people are starting out with something like WordPress and WordPress plugins. And then, you know, if it gets to, to work, I mean, I, I'm sure you're aware of the number of people that use literally Google Sheets as their database, just to have a little, a little JavaScript going out to Google Sheets, grabbing it, populating the database, right? I mean, People are really, really scrappy, and that stuff persists for decades, right? Was LinkedIn built in PHP or something? No offense to Steve. It probably wasn't quality PHP like Steve would do. Fence taken, but that's okay. <clears throat> All right. Well, take the fence. <laughs> keep it. Right? But but so, so when these websites are coming up, most of them are not architected until the point where they've proven the idea, they've gotten the investor money, they're starting to hire engineers. And then it's like, oh crap! What do we do now? I, but I know. think I think there are two concerns which are kind of legitimate. One is that if you create a documented public API, you need to support it with some sort of backward compatibility. Whereas when it's your own internal API that's intimately tied to your application, then you can decide to effectively just update both at the same time. Uh, it's not always convenient and it's sometimes challenging, but, you know, technically it's doable. So I think that that's one reason that people are kind of like hesitant about exposing APIs like that is, is that uh, support and backward compatibility issue. Uh, so that, and another factor I think is that people kind of, even though it's obviously patently a false assumption or approach, people like are concerned that if they expose their API in this way, they become more, well, hackable. 
that somehow, you know, when it's through their web interface, they have more control over which type of operations are, are performed. And that kind of actually reminds me of this funny thing that happened uh, here in Israel. Uh, it turns out that it's, it's really challenging to renew your passport in Israel these, these days. Not for any like nefarious government reason, more because of bureaucratic incompetence. Uh, basically, you know, scheduling an appointment can, you know, they'll schedule an appointment for you like a year from now in some, you know, and it's and if you really need to find somewhere because you want to fly somewhere, it can be really challenging. Uh, so some guy actually, some guy that worked at Wix, I forget his name, I'll need to look it up afterwards, kind of uh, looked at their website, reverse engineered their, uh, reverse engineered their API and created a much more friendly interface for renewing your passport, which would basically be able to smartly locate the nearest possible uh, uh, free scheduled appointment time, like in any brand, in any one of the uh, home office branches anywhere in Israel. So, you know, because Israel is small, people can drive to other cities in order to, re- do, to renew there instead of their hometown. Um, and for a while, like he was getting more hits through his web, the website that he built than the official Israeli government website. And then they realized it. So they did two things. First of all, they invited him to like give advice on how they can improve the service that they're giving based on what he learned. And the other thing that they did was to block his service. <laughs> 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 and, yeah. and basically now everybody's stuck with the crappy, same old crappy government service that, you know, is, is like sucks. Um, we, we had examples of that during uh, the COVID vaccinations where I think some like very, uh, you know, in, ingenious high school kids were reverse engineering the government sites because in the early days you had to go to several sites to find your vaccination appointment. And so they just aggregated it probably in a Google sheet or something, but then fed it back. And so people could then sign up more effectively. But again, the only way that could happen is by aggregating that data because these other platforms were not going to cooperate. I I have a question about this. And, I'm, and this is something that I use Postman for probably more than anything else is just getting off authorization keys, right? Or authentication keys, whatever you want to call them, um, right? Because I'm writing the integrations, right? pull from here, push from push to there, pull from there, push to here. Um, how, how do you reverse engineer some of that stuff, you know, like logins or getting the auth tokens or whatever? Because um, I'm assuming that you do this so that you can, yeah, speed stuff up. You can, you know, run a script and grab the information you want. And so, you know, as you're running through that, yeah, that's one thing where I get hung up is, yeah, how, how do you make that request? Do you just post to the login endpoint and then? Well, of course, at, everyone's going to follow back. the most documented proper way first. And then right. beyond that, then you're going to try to replicate what's already open and public. Um, mm-hmm. So if you do have those keys, you can plop them in there. I think um, I think somebody was talking about CSERF tokens earlier. There are ways where you can import certificates and cookies. Uh, Postman has a way where you can sync uh, web cookies 
to your instance of Postman so that you don't have to copy and paste or export. Mm -hmm. So there's a little extension that looks at the Postman app and Postman app looks back at the extension and then it just syncs your cookies so that you can... Yeah, I mean, that's pretty handy. I also have a question about Postman. I'm actually looking to potentially, you know, there's a project that I might be doing, which effectively is kind of hacking one of our own APIs at Next Insurance. Uh, We have a service that collects a lot of uh, business intelligence data. Basically, our our clients, both the native clients and the web clients, send a lot of telemetry data to a server that... um, you know, uh, collects all this information and, 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 you know, sends it to various backend systems. And we have a certain performance issue there that occasionally it can get overloaded. And I want to try to pinpoint uh, the, the scenario where it happens. And, you know, so basically I would want to emulate or simulate a lot of, let's say, web clients, you know, sending... Uh, a lot of of uh, a lot performing a lot of AJAX calls, sending simulated data into it. Now, one way that I could implement it is obviously write a node server that uh, that does it. Basically, just does a whole bunch of uh, fetch requests into our into the into the service. Can this is is this something that I could more easily do with Postman? Like create like some sort of a script within Postman that does a loop and sends a lot of events with simulated data in them? Yeah, you should be able to send um, API calls you know, like in waterfall fa- fashion or sequentially rather. Um, so you can fire them off from Postman. But if you're, are you talking about like large volumes? Yeah, like sending, yeah, large volumes, like sending thousands of, 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 of you know, post post uh, uh, requests into into yeah. that service. If you're talking about like a performance testing or load testing scenario. No, it's not um, a load there's... testing scenario. It's just that in order to replicate the uh, uh, the, the performance Sequence. issue that we have there, we have like this yeah. loop lag issue in, in that service. It's a node service itself. I'm, I'm thinking about running it locally on my own computer in some sort of a debugging environment, but then I need to feed a lot of data into it. So uh, either I run a second node service that just does a lot of AJAX requests into that service, but you know that would require a little bit of development effort on my part. If if it's just kind of baked in to uh, Postman, you know, <laughs> and we we yeah. we have licenses for Postman. Yes, it I is. use it. So <laughs> yeah. So you're probably used to just like firing off a call like ad hoc. Yeah, exactly. Um, there is a way. There is a way to script like a sequence of calls, and then you could just run it locally. You can mm-hmm. run it from your command line, um, and then if you do need some sort of parallelism, the the CLI tool. No, uh, I don't need to. I can to, I can just yeah. do you know if I do a, like it, it can be in sequence. Just it would be a large number of events. That's it. Yeah, you could do that. You could loop through external data and just continue feeding it. Um, mm. I just uh, uh, posted a video about running chat GPT, sorry, GPT-3 versus GPT-4 mm. and wanted to see, kick them off in parallel and visualize it. So I was using Postman Flows. Y'all probably haven't used it yet, but um, it's pretty snazzy. And I was able to log how much did it cost me in tokens? Who won? GPT-4 is much slower because it's a bigger model and um, they're still fine tuning it, but you're able to see that kind of stuff pretty quickly. Hmm. So it's like what on your uh, on your YouTube channel or something? I posted that one on TikTok, but I'll send you a link to that, Dan. Please do. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds cool. 
And I'm a, and I'm and this episode is already worth it for, for me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and there's one other thing. Uh, I, I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but like this just announced. Um, I'm excited. I don't have access to it. I just uh, ping the PM to ask for early access. But um, Dan, you're talking about like a lot of stuff happening internally, right? So we're talking about uh, reverse engineering public APIs, or rather undocumented public APIs. But also a lot of companies, big companies have no idea how many APIs they have, and they have no idea if they're still being used. Um, Are there zombie APIs and so forth? And so a lot of times people will go to their gateway and like look at the traffic coming through their gateway. And so Postman is launching something called um, Live Collections. And Chuck, if you've used a proxy, this is kind of similar, but you're going to put a little code snippet in your code. And then a Postman collection is just going to say, here's what your endpoints are. And then here's the traffic that's going to, through each endpoint. So that allows you to nice. sniff the traffic that your own people are sending. Right. That's cool. Um, I'm excited but- about that one. Yeah. Well, and speaking of people not knowing like all the endpoints they have or things like that, I think somebody brought up earlier that, you know, they may not want you to use them because they're afraid of getting hacked through those endpoints and stuff. But if the endpoint's exposed, the endpoint is exposed. Oh, yeah. It's security by obscurity. Yeah. um, (laughs) Which is never much. (laughs) Right. But, But I like this idea of being able to see, oh, what all is coming in from where, you know, using what kinds of resources and and then, yeah, being able to say, okay, well, um, this API is, you know, is something that we need to close off, right? It may not be insecure. It just may not be something we want to expose anymore, right? Or there's a better way to do it. And so we're going to make the concerted effort for all of the apps that use it to move over to a different API endpoint and then start closing up some of those places. Because, um, the thing that is interesting with security is that it's always a moving target. And so your your endpoint that, you know, you didn't document and that you can't believe people are still using, it may not be insecure today, but then there may be a zero day that exposes that, hey, it was insecure the entire time and now we've got to close it up. So, yeah, just knowing about that stuff, I think, is is a massive advantage. From a security standpoint, security and testing, but also a lot of like business leaders don't have an idea of how many APIs or don't have an idea of the magnitude and the importance and like the, mm-hmm. what's that word? Um, expo- like exposure. Right. Uh, the attack surface. And so mm-hmm. telling the business people, like, here's what your exposure is, like maybe invest in protecting it. Yep. Oh, for sure. The entire modern web and beyond web, like mobile apps, all of this stuff is built on APIs. I mean, we're living in a world where more, where everything is done via some sort of a backend service. And, you know, the front end needs to be able to talk to it somehow. So it's, it's, it's APIs all the way. I mean, <laughs> for sure. Um, and, and I totally agree about this whole thing about how to close API. I mean, even um, uh, like winding down an API can be really, really challenging because, again, like you said, I, I, I don't want to support this API anymore. 
I've created a new API that, let's say, subsumes this API, it's better, it's more secure, it's whatever, but if I just close off that existing old API, there's a good chance that I might break some part of my application or process mm-hmm. because, you know, in some weird set of thing of, you know, sequences, something invokes that API. And this is actually like, like I kind of alluded to, to before, this is kind of going to get a little bit more challenging, I think, with, with what's happening with some of the modern frameworks, which are kind of uh, subsuming what is currently done with RESTful APIs into the frameworks themselves. A lot of these modern frameworks are introducing their own proprietary mechanisms for performing RPC. Um, and and it'll be interesting to see how these are actually implemented and how well they are documented. Yep. One other thing that's kind of tangential to what you're talking about there, Dan, and Joyce has kind of Im- implied it as well, is that since these aren't documented, they're not really publicly exposed in the way that, hey, come use this API. Um, I'm curious, especially in your experience, Joyce, since I haven't done a ton of this, how often do those change? right? Where somebody does close off one endpoint and open up another one or things like that to where I've got this script or this set of things that Postman runs or whatever that just stop working, right? Because they upgraded their app and they didn't make a contract that said, this this will continue to work until this date. I mean, how many API providers do you know that promise no breaking changes? Or we're going to we're going to support this API indefinitely. I know of well, one off the top of my head. Usually oh, really? by version three, they get there. Well, but, so my, GitHub, Facebook, they are stable now, right? Yeah. They were terrible for the first couple of years. Well, Facebook was, I don't know about GitHub. Well, my experience is that they usually will put out a version two and a version three, right? And they'll, they'll make it better and better and better. And then if there's no way for them to continue to either provide the services that were exposed by version one or, um, you know, they have security or other concerns with version one, then what they do is they let people know um, these parts of the API are turning off today and the rest of it will go away at a certain point. Yeah, if you look at any of the research about how successful those communications of deprecated deprecation notices go, like you <laughs> right. will break some flow. Right? Yeah. All the communication You're hurt somebody works, with it. It works really great once the API is gone. Within 60 days people notice. Yeah. <laughs> Typically not the first day. <laughs> and then they go look in their Gmail archive and go, "Oh yeah, you did email oh, me yeah. about that." You have to look to make sure that you did get those deprecation notices. Right. Well, I'm just, sorry I yelled at you. I'm really sorry. Just consider how many times certificates just expire and and when websites yeah. break. <laughs> I mean, yep. Or 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 domains expire. <laughs> All of a sudden, somebody yep. loses their domain. So my my experience with sites I've reverse engineered has been every time a new framework comes out, the API that I was using breaks. So you know, every other Thursday. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. if you're reverse engineering, you, you know, it's it's almost like being on a canary build or a beta build. It's like there are no promises. 
it, you are building it, you are responsible for maintaining it and updating it to follow yeah. whatever does work. Don't build a business off of it unless you're real certain that it's going to stay stable and stay up. There's no promises. Yeah. I mean, it's only async awaiting. Yeah. Even when there's an, <laughs> even these days, even when there's an official API, there are no guarantees. Remember what happened with all the Twitter APIs. Like, you know, there was like for, for a brief while, there was like a whole ecosystem of people building their own custom Twitter clients. And then even before Elon Musk, they kind of decided that that's not going to be the case anymore. And they basically broke all of them, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's even more so, per my, per my understanding. So so yeah it's and 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 even the big companies uh can get uh uh well how would i say screwed in this way like you know consider what uh, has happening with apple tightening up their privacy uh uh you know um re- regulations and restrictions and how that's impacting let's say fa- uh, the facebook uh client on ios so, so yeah, APIs change. And, and certainly when it's the result of a reverse engineering process, it's, it's even more so. But if I can, you know, so we, we talked about using reverse engineering to compensate for lacking documentation. We talked about reverse engineering to circumvent some sort of limitations in, in the, uh, let's say, the website or the native application, you know, you want to do something that's more automated than they allow you to to do. Uh, or you want to talk to several systems like together. But that's like, like, well, it kind of goes to the title of this conversation. This is more like hacking. Are there any examples of more quote-unquote legitimate uh, scenarios that you can think of where we want to do these sort of things? And I'll say hacking is in my opinion, is not a bad word. Um, It just means taking something apart and seeing how it works. Of course, it has a negative connotation when you have like those 80s movies with people with hoodies, like hacking into something. Um, But like reverse engineering is used very commonly in debugging, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to figure out what went wrong or what, how to replicate something that went right. And so that's another synonym. Not to, I'm not saying like, I'm not, playing a political like hacking is okay kind of thing but devs have to debug and to some extent they are reverse engineering to a point right whether or not they completely replicate it build an app build a bot um is another scenario but you are reverse engineering and sniffing traffic and trying to figure out what's trying to figure out what's going on yeah i when i think of hacking i think of either one kind of the nefarious getting access to something that you shouldn't have access to or that they don't want you to have access to. And then the other is more along the lines of using something in a way that people didn't intend it to be used. And and that's more what I think we're talking about here, where they've exposed these APIs behind the scenes that are used by a client that they designed and they didn't really intend it to be publicly consumed. But, you know, there's nothing preventing you from doing it. And so... You know, yeah. I I do unless it's a licensing agreement. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one thing that I I can think of is um, I've seen uh, different plugins for different websites, right? 
Uh, LinkedIn is probably the most highly abused. I've seen uh, browser plugins that work with Gmail, but most of those work with exposed APIs and processes that Gmail has specifically handed up to um, developers to be able to use for that kind of a thing. But with LinkedIn, um, since I'm you know reaching out to people to do like sponsorship outreach and and uh, you know or finding information to invite people to you know come on the podcast, you know sometimes I have to get a little creative to find their contact information. And there are a ton of plugins out there that hook into LinkedIn right, that uh, use the way that LinkedIn works and scrape the the page or, you know, use the internal APIs the way you're talking about, because LinkedIn does not want you to use it that way. Um, and uh, yeah, occasionally those tools break because LinkedIn figures out that, hey, you know, they're, they're doing this. I think it's a losing battle because a lot of times they adapt within a few days. But yeah, um, I can see a use like that where um, one one other one I used to use, uh, hey.com email instead of Gmail. I just switched back because the tooling so much better with Gmail. But um, I thought about building a browser plugin that did a lot of the same things, you know, added features and functionality to Hey, and then basically gave you buttons and functionality that pushed to their back end. And, you know, it just, it did extra stuff and then just used the limitations of their internal API to do things. And so I could see somebody doing something like that, depending on the use case. And I remember reading an article, it was at the top of Hacker News about in-app browsers. And so it's, I wish I could remember this gentleman's name, but a security researcher was looking at TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, every mm-hmm. social media platform's in-app browser. And I was like, what's an in-app browser? Turns out when you're, and I didn't know, when you're in a mobile app and you click through to like buy that thing that some influencers telling you about, you are still on the platform. You are still in the house uh, until if you know how to look at it. It's the devil's you know, it's playground. Very... It's it's the worst of the worst. <laughs> um, in-app browsers should all die and then burn in hell. Um, in, for those of you don't, for those who don't know. Uh, if you look at applications like Twitter or like uh, Instagram or like uh, Facebook, often they have Discord. Often they have like you know people post links, uh, and when you click the link, rather than opening an instance of the device's default browser, what they do is that they do a they actually use a embedded web view to mm-hmm. display the content within the application itself. And the reasoning, I assume, is that this way, like, they they claim better user experience this way because they kind of control the, the flow. But in reality, it's mostly them not wanting you to leave their, their app. Mm-hmm. They want you to be confined to within their app. Also, they want to be able to track interactions and, and stuff like that, even into the, the web... Um, uh, the web the web interface. So you might think that you're now Nailed in a web page, but they're still tracking you. Um, but the pro- so there are a lot of issues with that. There are security and privacy issues with that, with this whole tracking thing. And I think that's kind of the thing. Some of the things that Apple, for example, I mentioned is addressing. But there's also the fact that very often those web views are kind of broken. And from experience, most. Uh, developers don't really test for them because it's almost impossible to test for them. And you, 
and you really can't debug them. So I've, I've very often seen pages that come out looking totally broken when they're open inside the, uh, 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 an in-app browser li- like that. Uh, but it is what it is. You, you know, the reality is that they're, they're, <laughs> they're around. There are a lot of them, unfortunately. So- I did find the gentleman's name, the security research, Felix Krauss. Uh, was trying to see how much JavaScript gets injected through an in-app browser, and then also who's logging your keys, right? So if you click through to an Amazon store and you're entering in your password, who's logging those keystrokes? Um, And then has a really nice table breaking down each um, common platform and who's the worst offender, which I'm sure you could probably guess who the worst offender is. It was TikTok, wasn't it? Huh? It was TikTok. Yes, yes, it was TikTok. Is TikTok even still legal in the U.S.? Yes, but they're debating it, so we'll see. Um, yeah, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. I mean, I, I guess we've kind of talked around a lot of ideas, and I just kind of want to pull things together here at the end. So if you, let's say that you found some website that provided something and you wanted to start reverse engineering it, um, I mean, what, what, what approach would you take just to kind of get started and what kind of issues do you anticipate you would have to solve as you did it? Um, it sounds basic, but I would just start with dev tools and observing what's going on. The vast, vast majority of people can't even imagine what's going on behind the scenes in terms of network calls. So um, recording that information and then sifting through every network call that's coming, that's how the um, security researcher Felix Krauss identified these vulnerabilities. Um, and so Postman has a couple different ways to help you do that. We talked about a couple of them. You can import a HAR file. You can import a curl command. Uh, you can proxy your calls. Uh, soon there will be live collections, and then you can replay those calls. You are going to run into issues really quickly with any company that is worth their salt in security or even just um, web practices. Uh, so you will have issues replaying something when a token expires, when you don't have your correct authorization key. Um, and so figuring out um, through either well-documented reasons or sniffing that traffic Uh, is going to be your best bet. And I think reverse engineering, hacking, debugging, whatever you want to call it, can only make you a stronger dev. Mm -hmm. Um, Having those tools and knowing when to use, like when to start inspecting something is, can only make you a better dev. I totally agree. Very often in my day job, I'm, I, you know, I work with different teams and different products in an organization uh, trying to help them, you know, improve their performance. But, you know, I, I, I kind of join teams with developers or well-versed in their product, and but I'm not. And so uh, if it's a web-based product, very often the way that I mostly learn about what it is and how it works is to look at the network tab and then to look at the profile tab. And that gives you so much insight into, like you said, into exactly what's actually uh, happening. You know, what's it actually doing? Uh, what's it waiting for? Why is it waiting for this sort of stuff? And, you know, you, you, you certainly learn a lot, a lot of things this way. This is like a fast track into understanding how things work on the inside. 
especially, like I said, in web-based applications. It's more challenging with native applications. And Chuck, I think you were saying that how you start with something is you start with the documentation. And I'll tell you, that is such a surprise because most devs don't read the documentation right away. They do get to the documentation, but they start off with interacting and playing with the tech. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, obviously go to the documentation. The documentation is really important. But if it's not up to date and if there is no documentation, play, play with the tech. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of times it's intuitive enough to where, I mean, the the only documentation I really look at is how to get started. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes, yeah, it's just, okay, I see how they structured stuff. You know? How to but get yeah. your auth token in the first place is always the hardest part because it's never, yeah. it's always buried it's somewhere the in the documentation because you only need it once. And so in every other page, it just assumes, oh, you already did this. It doesn't, you know. Even when they yeah. give the the curl examples, a lot of times they'll omit the the token in even though you have to have it. It's not actually correct curl. It's so weird. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, cut to the next portion of our episode. Uh, before we do that, Joyce, if people want to connect with you online or if they have questions about this, where do, where do they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter, and don't come at me, but I'm also on TikTok for now until it gets banned by the U.S. government. Find me on TikTok, Joyce Jetson. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's go ahead. And uh, we, we added a segment after the picks. Um, and it's uh, basically just uh, self-promotion. So what are you working on now that uh, people should know about? We'll start with AJ. AJ, what are you working on now that people should know about? Absolutely nothing. But I'll tell you about something anyway. So uh, Beyond Code. We're doing workshops. We're starting with some shell workshops. If you're interested in that, I know it'll be have been a month, but it's okay. I'll, I'll I'm going to redo it anyway, or you know, do it do another series of them. Um, but if you're interested in learning how to use the shell, so this is kind of Bash, but it's kind of anti-Bash. It's more the POSIX shell. But in order to learn the POSIX shell, you basically have to learn which parts of the POSIX shell are the not Bash parts because there's no documentation on the POSIX shell other than the technical reference manual. There are zero books on the shell that you have to use on BSD and Docker and all these CI, CD environments, et cetera. So when you're running a script and it just doesn't work, you don't know why, it's because that environment needs a POSIX script shell, which is ever so... Bash is a superset of POSIX, essentially. So Bash is like... No, I can't make a comparison. Anyway... So I've got that. So just uh, search out Beyond Code Bootcamp uh, at underscore Beyond Code on Twitter. Hit me up. Let me know if you're interested in participating on that. Um, it's basically 99.9% off right now because I'm developing it and it's live working sessions rather than pre-recorded material. And then the other thing is some buddies and I got together and we are doing cloud hosting services we are buying servers, I think, today. They've been in the shopping cart. We've just been debating over some minor configurations, you know, this RAM or that RAM, this drive or that drive, whatever. But in about two weeks, we should have them in a local data center. So I've already been in contact with the data center when visited it. Uh, why would you choose our hosting service that doesn't yet have a name? I, I don't know. You probably wouldn't. But it's going to be... It's privately owned. We're not going to get any venture capital for this. We are, you know, by the end of the year, if we have 100 clients and that's all that we have, that'll be great. 
We are using the same technologies that DigitalOcean uses uh, in terms of how the containers and the virtualization and all that are done. It's all the same technology. We're using Ceph. Uh, you know, most of the stuff is open source for these these VPS providers and cloud service providers, and then they just give you a really beautiful interface on top of the open source software. So we're, we have an er- redundant, uh, redundant set of servers. We have a, a cold spare server, so to speak. So in case anything does happen to any one of the servers, we've got extra drives. So we are, we are all good. We've got a lifeline with the data center. We don't have to necessarily drive down there. If it's an urgent issue, we can call them up and say, Hey, open the cabinet, pull out the spare drive, put it in server three where the red light's blinking, please. So it is going to be, as far as I can tell, we actually, because because we're starting this now and running the latest versions of those open source packages, we actually, I think, will have an edge over DigitalOcean in a lot of regards because we're not starting like they did 10 years ago when all of this stuff was still kind of being formed and being figured out. We're starting with the best stuff, the latest versions today. So anyway, if you're interested in that, I think that the big thing is we're privately owned. So we're not going to have the problems that VC-backed companies have. Cool. Dan, what are you working on that people should know about? I don't know if this is something that people should really know about, but it's still an interesting story uh, that I actually tweeted about and got some a lot of like curious feedback. Um, you might recall that back in episode 350, we had Adam Bradley from uh, Builder.io to talk about one of their many projects, this one called Party Town. Party Town is this amazing hack they created, which can you can use to move um, marketing pixels off of the main thread uh, and on in, into a worker. You know, stuff like the Google Tag Manager or the Facebook pixel, because all these things are like the spawn of hell, kind of similar to uh, in-app browsers uh, in that they, you know, really F everything up. Uh, pardon my French. And um, and yeah, so uh, the problem with this thing, with Party Town, is that it's not so much a product like a concept. You can't really, like, it's not plug and play. You You usually need to, you will need to kind of really massage things on in your particular website to get it to work with a set of pixels that you happen to be using. Um, so actually, we at Next Insurance went through the effort of integrating Party Town into our uh, public website, and the results have been very nice. Uh, dramatic improvement in the uh, INP metric, which measures kind of like the interactivity of uh, of the website, how quickly it responds to user interactions and user input. Uh, obviously, you want your website to be as interactive as responsive as possible. You know, you don't want people rage clicking on your on your buttons because they just don't respond. Certainly, you don't want them to bounce because the website just doesn't work. And uh, Party Town has made a really significant difference for us. Uh, one of our developers, Tom Tavo, she did all the heavy lifting of actually integrating it into a website. You know, I was like uh, rooting for her, but she did all the the actual work. Uh, and like I said, the results you can you know see them plain as day in our graphs. Um, and um, 
it's really cool. And a lot of people are like, wow, you know, how did you do that? And, and stuff like that. And it's, uh, you know, it's really nice to see a kind of a technological magic like this actually work out. Let's put it this way. So that's an interesting story. Cool. Steve, what are you working on that people should know about? Well, like uh, Dan and AJ said, there's things I'm working on, and I don't know if people should necessarily know that I'm working on them. Um, I just will say I'm still working on a long-term project uh, that involves Inertia JS with you and Laravel, and it's a lot of fun. I'm thinking about maybe doing some blogs and videos and stuff just from stuff I've learned from it and bumps I've had to overcome to integrate everything. But it's a stack that I really like just because it, uh, it's quick, it's very fast, and it gives me all the control I like over my data and organization, you know, and structure and, and stuff without having to uh, rely on an external data structure like a, you know, a CMS, a Prismic or a Sanity or something like that. But uh, that's a long-term project that I'll hopefully finish here in the next month or so. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to throw mine wow, on. I excited Dan more. there. I could see that. <laughs> Dan was yawning for those who couldn't see. It's it's kind of late here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> even even though it's daylight uh, savings on your side of the world and not on ours, which will yeah. probably be my pick or something like that. All right. Well, I'm going to throw in real quick. I'm going to make mine really brief. Um, I've been talking to a bunch of people. Uh, there are kind of three things that people are concerned about these days or want more content from us on. Um, one of them is, especially given that some people seem to be losing their jobs. In fact, my contract ends on Thursday. Um, and so I'm looking for, you know, more stuff to, to work on, probably part-time. But uh, the one is the career stuff, right? How do I, you know, put my best foot forward, find a job that I like, stuff like that. Um, definitely working on content on that. Um, the other one is React. People want more content on React. Um, and then the last one is, is I've had, I can't tell you how many people ask me when we're going to put game development content out. So to answer the last question, um, my friend Jason Wyman, um, he has a Unity course that he's put together. Um, by the time you're done, you will have built a game. Um, and he just walks you through the process of doing each step. Um, he, his course, it's up at game.courses. I'll put a link in the, uh, the show notes. Um, because if you use my link, then he does give me a kickback. Now he doesn't charge you anymore. So it's just a referral link for me, but he's also given me a coupon, uh, JavaScript five will get you 20% off the course. And what we're doing is, is anybody who buys the course, um, I'm just going to do a call every week, probably on like Thursday morning. And we're just going to talk about how our games are coming, right? Because this is something that I've wanted to learn for a while. Um, my my 17-year-old son, he's convinced he's going to be a game developer when he grows up. We'll see how that works out. But um, it's a way for me to connect with him. And so uh, anyway, if you're interested, um, I'll put the, the proper link in the show notes. You can just click through and sign up. And then... Um, I'll, I'll also have a link so that you can just join our calls every week. I'm not going to make it that complicated to get in or make you sign up for anything special, right? You just, you know, jump on our circle.so uh, instance. It's, um, you know, where we can do chat and stuff. And so you'll be able to chat about it and then join the calls. 
Um, but yeah, that that's what I'm looking at. And uh, I am planning on starting a game dev podcast here within the next few weeks. So uh, should be fun. Uh, Joyce, what are you working on that people should know about? Well, I don't do game dev, but I just 3D scan my face using Unreal Engine and MetaHuman. So I'm getting ready for the metaverse. You guys oh, can fun. all see, we can all interact with each other in the meta, in a metaverse. Um, I then get we'll to know go. what you look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I I told you about the, I was playing with the OpenAI API running GPT-3 versus GPT-4 models and running the race. And I posted this video and people were really intrigued by Postman Flows. That's the program that I was using to set calls off in parallel. So last week I recorded a bunch of videos. Um, Postman Flows has been in beta for the last year. And by the time you hear this podcast, it will be in general availability. So if you want to check out those videos of how to do low-code API workflows, check out the Postman YouTube channel. Awesome. All right, now let's roll into picks. Steve, you have picks for us? Yes. Uh, the first pick would be is more of a visual pick for those who are watching. That is the wig I'm sporting. It's called the Chick Magnet. If you Google the Chick Magnet wig, it's like night and day I go from ugly to handsome. Although it's true that God created so many perfect heads and the rest he covered with hair. It's still nice to have hair, and especially for keeping my head warm once in a while. A little itchy, but so it does the job. If you want to enhance your looks, the chick magnet wig is the way to go. Uh, for the uh, dad jokes uh, of the week, uh, those of you who are regular listeners know that I have a particular affinity for the uh, cow jokes. And I really wish I had a, a uh, cow joke sound effect, but I don't. But uh, the question is, what do you get when you cross a cow in a bazooka? Anybody know? Utter destruction, right? Uh, now, a thought for the day is a sock of pennies is actually a great weapon because you never know when you'll need to beat some sense into someone. Right? And then uh, for you uh, sci-fi movie fans out there, uh, there's two astronauts talking in space. And astronaut one says, I can't find any milk for my coffee. <clears throat> astronaut two says, in space, no one can. Here, use cream. No, in space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah, yeah, movie. yeah. But sorry, Joyce had the really confused look there, so I had to ruin it and explain that joke. But anyway, those are my uh, jokes of the week. All right, AJ, what are your picks? The unmute button is his first pick. He hasn't picked I, it yet. It's the <laughs> mic button, AJ, little one that says mic. Do I have a way of requesting him to unmute? <laughs> Sometimes I can do that. Oh, that's weird. So I was double muted. I was muted in the software as well as muted by the Shush app. And the Shush app has this weird thing where it was designed before the current window management system that Apple has deployed. And so it will not update the icon in the menu bar on all screens. And so on most screens... Actually, it's like 50-50 whether it shows me as muted right now or not, depending on which screen I'm looking at. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so uh, what was I going to pick? Oh, so I I eventually did get a new phone. I got the, the iPhone SE 2020. And 
I have almost all the same problems on this phone as the other phone. So people would tell me, oh, you've got to update your phone. It's because your phone screen is so small. The screen on this, the resolution on this is almost exactly the same size. It's just larger so you can see it better. But anyway, I I actually am enjoying it. But what makes it bearable, because I couldn't I couldn't stand it. The reason I didn't want a huge phone is because I want to be able to reach the whole phone and, and I don't want to have to use two hands because using two hands to text while driving is dangerous. and and a lot of other activities too. So you don't want to have to be using two hands to use your phone. But I found these these cheapo little adhesives that go on the back. And I think it's $6 for a pack of six or something like that. So you can, you know, you got some colors to choose from. But it it makes it totally usable. And I don't feel, sorry, I'm going to offend, you know, half, maybe three quarters of everyone. But the stupid little circle knobs on the back that make you look like a dork. Yeah, I didn't want one of those. No offense to anybody who uses those. Now, you've got the ring. The ring is a little bit different. I'm not sure if it's better or worse, but you've got the ring there. But anyway, no, I just, I personally, the the little the little circle knobs that pull out and, and push in, that those, I just, I, I, they're, they're looking at those is like nails on a chalkboard visually for me for some reason. And I just, I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. But I found these little strappy-doos and they work great. And I can, I, I positioned it a little bit off center so that if I use it as a kickstand on one side, it's a different angle than if I use it as a kickstand on the other side. So if I'm sitting in bed watching a movie or, or something as I'm falling asleep, then uh, I've got two viewing angles to choose from. And then, yeah, it just it just works really well. It's really simple. It's just an adhesive and some silicone and, and a little metal button. And, um, and it's, been, it's been working great for me, and I'm, I'm loving it. So got to share the joy. Dan, what are your picks? Uh, Anti-picks today. So my first anti-pick is Daylight Savings because our listeners might have noticed that I was absent in our previous episode, the one where we interviewed uh, Tejas about, uh, uh, what's it called, Uh, Signals. Uh, And that's Mm -hmm. despite the fact that I was the one that really invited him to come and speak on our show. And the reason that I did not participate is that it's daylight. It started to be daylight savings in the U.S., but it's not yet daylight savings in Israel. And I kind of had it in my head that, you know, the show was recorded at a particular hour. I didn't check the calendar. And guess who missed the recording? Um, so, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's just so, I don't know, there's just something so stupid about the fact that you can't really tell what time it is somewhere in like a predictable sort of a way. I don't know. It's, 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 you know, there's there's something I, I, I understand how people used to live according to when the sun came up and when it, the sun set, but it, it, I don't know. So, so it's, it's kind of seems kind of dated this, this approach and not very productive anyway. So that would be the first thing. And my second is the still ongoing war in Ukraine, which I assume a lot of people have stopped noticing or remembering or thinking about. But guess what? It's still ongoing. So anything that our listeners can do to help the people in Ukraine, please do. And those would be my anti-picks for today. All right. Um, I'm going to throw in some picks. Uh, my first pick is I always pick uh, a board game and this is a board game. It's not a board game. It's a card game, 
Um, uh, we played it so every year in February. Y'all, I, I keep backing up further and further. So every February, uh, my wife and I and my sister-in-law and her husband and um, her father, we all go on a trip and we go to the Parade of Homes and we walk through houses. And one of the games we played is called The Crew. We always play card games and board games at night after we get back. Um, and The Crew is, it's a card game. There's a Trump suit. There are four cards in the Trump suit. There are nine cards in every other suit, the four other suits. Um, and you um, you basically get assigned to take a specific card in one of your tricks. And sometimes you have to do it in order. And sometimes you have to, um, you know, do other things during the, the game. But anyway, it's a pretty simple game. Uh, Board Game Geek ranks it at, uh, what was it, a 1.97. So, I mean, casual game, 20-minute rounds. And they give you a bunch of different quests to complete. And there are 50 of them. So when you complete them all, you anyway. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I've, I've really enjoyed that. I'm going to pick that. And then um, I've still been watching Battlestar Galactica, just rewatching that because I really love that show. So, you know, it's not it's not like an up to date pick because the show's what, 15 years old or something. but. Uh, I, I it's one of my favorites. And so whenever I'm like, I don't see anything I really want to watch, that's usually something I put on. So I'm going to pick that. And then this one's for Steve. I saw a story. Um, I was just browsing the internet, saw a story that uh, showed this study that says that dad jokes help kids uh, develop into healthy adults. Yes. Yes, that's so, so true. So I'm going to post a link to that. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was kind of fun and funny. Yes. So uh I like that. Yeah. All right, Joyce, what are your picks? I was trying to use context clues to figure out what picks were. Are they pictures? Are they dad jokes? Are they anti picks? Call outs to anything you enjoy. <laughs> yeah. I was prepared for anything. <laughs> oh sorry. Um, I love Battlestar Galactica. I watched it much later than when it first came out, but that uh I didn't like the first episode, and so I stopped. I didn't, even though people raved about it, but, like, totally worth worth the watch. Uh, I don't really have anything that I feel super strongly about, so I do have a dad joke, if uh, Steve yes. will permit me. Uh, so my, my uh, postman has a dad jokes Slack channel at work, and so I just picked the one that tickled my fancy. It's the image of a nursery or a plant nursery, and the sign says, you can't plant flowers if you haven't bought any. I got it. Anybody mm-hmm. else get it? Mm-hmm. Okay. It took me a minute. It took me a minute. Bought any. Bought any. Yes. Uh, got it. Yep. AJ, oh, AJ's yeah. a little slow on the uptake here. <laughs> no, it took so, me a minute. My sister, she sent me a text message and my brother, he sent, yeah. So people send me text messages and they're not English. They're misspelled words. They're missing words. They're words out of order. Now, granted, I do this too because I swear the phone autocorrects. My phone autocorrects to languages that don't even exist. I'll type a correct word and it'll just put out nonsense. It's just XJRKM4. What? Anyway, so I get that sometimes it's the fault of the phone, but I cannot interpret random words in a text message. If you want to swap every letter of a word, and it, but the whole sentence is still a complete sentence, I can read that no problem. 
But when words are missing or or punctuation that's important is missing or homophones are used where it's it's a word like, for example, there and there, there as in owned by them and then there as in over there. When when that kind of stuff happens in a text message, I can't read it. So I'm actually not very good at these sorts of puns, generally speaking. And my least favorite pun is the ones, the the written puns where one letter goes into the next letter of the next thing. I, I can't, I can't, I can't I think of one off the top of my head. I never thought of dad jokes as a skill. I just, it's definitely an art. Okay. There might be another research article about this, but the reason why puns are funny to people is because it does something special in your brain where you're expecting one thing and then getting another. So mm-hmm. maybe that's going to be in, in the article that you post. Yeah, well, uh, I have to say that my dad jokes earn me eye rolls every day with my kids. So totally worth it. All right, well, let, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Uh, thanks again for coming, Joyce. It's good course, to talk to you Of course, thank you for again. inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And uh, we'll end it here. Till next time, folks, Max out. 